Hey, last week when I um, was going over the material for um, this teaching, some of the PowerPoint stuff didn't work out so well, but it was all my fault, I realize now. The guys in the sound booth actually rescued me. And, but we were, hopefully this week, we, I met with Greg, we uh, changed some things, and so hopefully, hopefully this week it's going to go a lot smoother. And uh, I, I learned how to, to use my little stick here. <laughs> so let's pray. Lord, this morning I do thank you for your kindness um, to us. I realize, Lord, just looking at these doctrines, that salvation was something that happened long before anything was created. In your council room, you decided these things. And Lord, your word tells us that you are sovereign over everything. And so, Lord, who are we to question you, how you accomplished it? We're finite. We, we do not, um, we don't have the capacity to know all the answers. But we trust you because of who you are and your character and because you only tell us the truth. And so thank you for that. And as we approach this subject again this morning, I pray that you would give us more insight and understanding of the process and the scriptures that we're going to look at. So we're convinced in scripture that this is what it says And it would bolster our faith and give us confidence to live uh, our Christian life. And I pray this in your name. Amen. All right, that came up nice. So I'm I'm continuing to look at the doctrines of grace. Of course, uh, this is also called uh, Calvinism. I don't like using that word very much. It's got a lot of baggage to it. Uh, but nonetheless, it, 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 we're focusing in last week and this week on the nature of the atoning work of Christ. Uh, these doctrines, when once understood, do influence all other doctrines that we would hold to. Uh, and so we, we, we see already that there's the first one we've covered, total de- de- uh, privity and r- or radical corruption, and then unconditional election. Uh, and then limited atonement, and that's where we're on this morning, or particular redemption. And so uh, the common view is that Jesus died for everyone, but limited atonement or particular redemption or definite redemption does not mean that Christ's death was limited in value, but only in extent. The gospel is to be offered to all people uh, at all times. And it is often said that the atonement was sufficient for all and efficient only for those who would believe or only for the elect, those God chose before the foundation of the world. So that is the subject today, unlimited atonement, particular redemption. And so the important question that came up uh, in theology, that, that comes up in theology is what was the original purpose of Christ's death. Was that purpose, first of all, to make possible the salvation of all people on the condition of their believing? And of course, if that was the case, then salvation could be not secure for anyone. 
Others, uh, like those in the Arminian camp that I mentioned in the first message, say that the atonement was not designed by God to purchase a specific people for himself, but to make salvation possible for any person who will, or of his or her free will, repent and believe? Or, of course, was it to ensure the salvation of his people? So was it to make possible the salvation of all people, or was it to ensure the salvation of his people, which, is, was, which was definite in design and accomplishment? This, of course, doctrine states that the death of Christ actually put away the sins of all God's elect and entrusted uh, and actually ensured that they would be brought to faith through regeneration or being born again and kept in faith for glory. What God starts, he will finish. So from this definiteness, And effectiveness follows its limitlessness. Christ did not die in this efficacious sense for everyone. In other words, not all are saved. All would agree with that. The issue of limited atonement is it is limited in its design. That is, the original design of the atonement was to provide a definite sacrifice for the elect. And that sacrifice would accomplish everything needed for someone to be right with God. That their sins would be covered, that their sins would be washed away forever, and that God's children could be made right with God forever by trusting in that one sacrifice uh, in Christ Jesus. So Jesus did not lay down his life for the wolves and the goats, uh, just for the sheep. So then when Jesus was dying on the cross, he was substituting himself and paying the price for their sins, for a particular specific people. All that the Father had given to him was on his heart. That's definitely what took place. But of course, others will Retort, now what about passages that suggest that Christ died for all people? And of course, you know what we're talking about because you brought those passages up in the beginning and when you didn't understand possibly, and I brought them up. And so this morning, I'm going to look at those passages. I'm going to look at the passages in their context and see what they say, because I know that you may have looked at the passage and wondered, what does this actually say? And so it's, as it, it's tied into uh, this subject of limited atonement, uh, that Christ dying for a particular specific people of all the people that the Father had given to him was definitely on the heart of Christ when he was dying on the cross. So let's take a look at these. There's six passages Hopefully, I'll get a chance to get through all of them, and I may spend time, a little more time on one particular one, because maybe it's the most, the one most misunderstood. And so, the first one, of course, is going to be John 3.16, all right? John 3.16. Now, this is the first problem passage. Now, it may come 
as a big surprise to you to learn that the, in the original language, uh, in the Greek, of course, the Koine Greek, there is no word for who ever in the Greek. Now, and the reason why I say that is because the emphasis most people give this passage of Scripture is whoever would believe. All right? So there, the emphasis would lie in whosoever will. And so that lies in the, in the person themselves in believing or not believing in their own will. Now, of course, when we look at the Scripture, we'll find that the King James and the New King James uh, reads that whosoever believeth in him, the New American Bible and the New Living Translation say everyone who believes in him, and the ESV, English Standard Version, the New American Standard Version, and the NAS and the NAU, which is just the 1995 version of the New American Standard Bible, says whoever believes in him. So it's, they're consistent. They leave the word there, and most likely because of the influence of the King James Bible, that word is left there. All right? Literally, the text reads, it reads this way. In order that every, the one believing in him, not to perish, but have life eternal. It says every, or all the believing ones. Through our English translations, of course, uh, that's hard to express, but our English translations say whosoever believes. The literal rendering is actually translated every believing one, and the emphasis is not on all or on whosoever, but on belief. So there is a solution to this particular verse of scripture and the solution, interpretive solution would be the ones, uh, the ones believing will not have one consequence, but they will have another one's consequence. They will not perish, but they will have everlasting life. Now, why? Because the main verb is God gave, where it says God gave his son for the purpose, all right? What, for what purpose? that every believing one should not perish and that every believing one should have everlasting life. So then the question is, what does this text tell us about who will believe or who can believe? Absolutely nothing. It says nothing about that. Uh, The text does not address the issue of who will believe or who can believe. In fact... uh, John 3.16 actually speaks of a limited, speaks of a limitation or a particular rather than a universal redemption. It speaks of a particular redemption and a limited redemption and not a universal redemption. So clearly, not everyone will be saved but only those who believe in Christ. So the Father gave his Son for the purpose of those who believe. The Son is given, so the believing ones will not perish, but the opposite of that, they will have eternal life. 
So that is one passage. Now, the other passages of scriptures that suggest that Christ died for all people, we're going to look at those today. So this morning is more of a teaching, but I, uh, and I, I'm going to have you look up several passages of scripture, but right now I'm going to put this one up on the screen because I don't want you to get lazy and not use your Bibles, all right? And that's one reason why I don't use this all the time. So you have to look at your own Bibles. All right, but look at the passage, and this is one you may have used, and I've, I've wondered what it said, and you have too. It says there in 1 Timothy 4.10, For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now, doing an investigation on this passage of Scripture, we'll find that there are really a few interpretations. The first interpretation is this, the idea that God is the Savior of all men means that all who have ever lived will be saved. Of course, this, of course, is contrary to all sound doctrine. Uh, If this was true the rest of the verse would have no meaning when it says especially of believers. A second interpretation would be that God wants to save everyone, but his desires in many many times are thwarted by the obstinate free will of man. And of course, this is the common view. Most common view today is this one. That is not correct, though. And there's a note that I want to just mention is that... uh, Though this passage does not say he wants wants to save, but he actually saves. He is actually the Savior in some sense of all men. Also, God's will is never frustrated. We know from passages of Scripture that it says in in Isaiah, for example, my people will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. There's a third interpretation, and it's this, that God is able to save all men, but though all can be saved, only believers actually are. Again, this is not what the text says. What what does the text say? I think there's a fourth interpretation that is viable uh, and is one that fits the context, that God is the Savior of all men in one sense, and especially of those who believe in another sense. Now, this fourth interpretation does definitely fit the context. The term salvation or Savior has many nuances in Scripture, many different ways, in other words, God saves. In God's area of common grace, and common grace is grace God gives every single person, for example, it says in Psalm 18:3, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. In other words, salvation is used there when God rescues his people from enemy attack. All right? And then also God preserves. He's a God who preserves life. So therefore, by that sense, he saves people, or he brings physical healing in a general sense to whoever he wants to, whether they're saved or unsaved, uh, because that's God's prerogative. And so in that way, he saves them from a particular disease or something like that. 
And then also remember, in Acts chapters 27, when Paul and the people on the boat were shipped, where uh, the storm came and everything was falling apart. Remember, Paul told the people, listen, if you jump out of the boat, you won't be saved and the whole vessel. But if you stay in the boat, you will be saved. In other words, God saved their lives. uh, And they didn't drown, but ended up on the island of Malta. And of course, we know that that word save is used there. And then in a passage of scripture like, uh, Matthew five, forty-five, where the Bible tells us that God saves in the sense of providing food. We know what it says there in Matthew five forty-five, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, that the Lord does give sunlight and rainfall to all people, right? So we can have food. But then there's one passage of Scripture I want you to turn to, and it's Acts 17, verse 25 and 26, and then verse 28 in your Bibles. And in other words, that God is the one who gives life and breath to all things. Without him, there could be no life and breath. All right? In Acts 17, look at verse 25. It says, nor... Is he served by human hands as though he needed anything? Acts 17, verse 25. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. In verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. And of course, it tells us, Further, in verse 28, that in him we live and we move and we have our being. Now, in reading those passages, we see that, in other words, God preserves, he delivers, he supplies the needs of all who live in this world, and it is in this sense that he extends grace to them, saving them from destruction every day they live. In fact, every day we wake up, We have to thank the Lord. We're living another day if the Lord wants us to be on this earth. Why? It's only because of him that we are allowed to live another day. So see, God is also gracious in allowing many to hear the proclamation of the gospel. All these mercies are referred to as common grace. Uh, God sustains the lives even of his sworn enemies, Uh, for many decades sometimes. Why? Because of God's common grace. But there's a special grace too that comes only to those who believe. And of course, that's the most important because the most important aspect of this word salvation is to be saved from the wrath of God. That's another way that God saves us. He saves us from the wrath of God. Of God. All right, so bringing that all together, what is the solution? The solution is this. In 1 Timothy 4.10, it teaches that we have our hope on the living God who is the Savior, all right? What does that mean? The preserver, the sustainer, the, the deliverer of all people, showing mercy to all each and every day they live. And then, especially to those who believe why, they receive full salvation from his wrath 
and everlasting life. So that word, especially now, has meaning to it because how, is, how are the believers especially saved different from the common grace of God because we receive special grace of God. And that special grace of God is when the gospel comes to us and God uh, regenerates us, gives us the gift of faith and repentance, and we believe we are saved ultimately from the wrath of God. So now when you read that passage of Scripture, you find that that word Savior does not mean that God is saving people uh, from just eternal wrath. He's only saving especially those who are saved from eternal wrath. But he saved all common people in all kinds of ways every day by preserving their lives, by sustaining their lives, and by delivering them from different events, right? So that's that one. Now, here's the next passage, and I want you to turn there. We're going to spend a little bit more time on this one, and that's in 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 9. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 9. Now, look what it says there in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 9. It says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, this passage of Scripture has confused many people uh, throughout time. Now, this does this passage mean that God longs for every person to be saved? Therefore, Jesus died for everyone, and at least his or her salvation is a possibility. Or every person within a particular category of humanity. So when considering 2 Peter 3.9, two terms must be examined to be able to grasp what what is being referred to. The first term is the term in the passage of Scripture, willing. All right? Willing. That according to Reformed theologians, the word will is used in different senses in Scripture. It's sometimes used to mean decree. In other words, uh, God's decretive will, and that what that means is that his decretive sovereignty states that God ordains all that happens in the sphere of the material events, uh, and of course, events may be regarded as ne- in the events that may be regarded as necessary. That is to say, they are brought about by the action of necessary causes. In short, God brings about all that He purposes or wills to do or desires to do. Nothing hinders God from doing what he pleases. Now, if that's applied to this verse, then it would mean if we say that God is not wishing or willing that any should perish, that would mean that if this meaning is applied to the atonement, it would lead to universalism, All right? So that can't be true. Another way this word willing or wishing is used and it's the word, the perceptive will of God. That is to say, 
divine sovereignty is subordinate to and contingent upon the freedom of man. That is, uh, commands in Scripture, like the Ten Commandments, uh, these commandments could be obeyed or disobeyed. All right? So that means that it would be in the ballpark of men to decide whether they would believe or not believe. And of course, if that is applied to this passage of Scripture, if this meaning is applied to the atonement, it would mean you're not allowed to perish. All right, so that can't be the sense. And then sometimes the word will is used in a sense of desire and wish that God's will is, uh, it's the will of disposition, what God pleases. What does, what does not delight, God does not delight, in other words, in the death of the wicked. Uh, but if we applied that to this passage of Scripture, uh, then in the atonement, applied to the atonement, it would mean that God does not have the disposition that any should perish. And of course, we know that's not true. For instance, a righteous judge does not will or desire that anyone should be hanged or sentenced to prison. Yet he wills or pronounces sentence that the guilty person shall be punished. All right, so we're getting closer to what we're, to an interpretation. And of course, there's a second term in the passage, and it's the term any. All right, any doesn't, remember, does not mean all. Some insist that 2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 9, the words any and all refer to all mankind without exception. But we have to ask some questions. And the questions are, any what? Any from which group? Any person, people, or particular class or category of people? In other words, who is the you in our passage? Who is the any and the all referring to in our passage? They're all there uh, in the passage of Scripture. We have to identify these particular people. Now, the group frequently referred to in Peter's epistles is a category of people addressed to as the elect, the chosen, and the called. Right? If you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, uh, you see there at the end of the verse... It says in 1 Peter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithany, who are chosen. All right, so right in the beginning, he's saying, these are the people I'm speaking to. Now, if we go back also in, our, in, in 2 Peter, if you look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number one through three, we have to ask, who is Peter writing to? Who are the people that he's writing to? Well, if you notice what it says in verse number one of First Peter, Second Peter chapter one, it says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received the faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us 
everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So in First and Second Peter, the audience that is being written to is referred to as the beloved, the chosen, and the called. All right. Now, follow with me now. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 through 15, because now let's just read the context that this verse sits in. Look what it says. 2 Peter 3, verse 7. It says, but by the word... By his word, the present heavens, heavens and earth's, earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Verse 8, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, singular, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Verse 12, looking for the hastening, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens, a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace and spotless and blameless, uh, be in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they all do also the rest of Scripture to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity Amen. All right, so that's an incredible passage of Scripture. Can't wait till I get to preach through that. So when we look at the whole passage of Scripture, it is not a passage isolated. It's, it's not a passage, when we read it like that, isolated from its context. We discover that it is not primary a salvation verse at all. It is a second coming passage. Now look with me again at verse number 9. When we think of it like there, it starts off by saying the Lord is not slow about his promise. Singular, right? Now, the question is, what promise? 
Well, looks, look at verse chapter 2. If you look at chapter 3 of 2 Peter, all right, in verse number 4, it says, and saying, first, excuse me, did I say 1 Peter? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. Look at what it says. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as was from the beginning of creation. Now, who was saying that? Well, in verse number 3 of chapter 3, know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, saying what? Where is Christ coming? I look around and everything looks the same to me. Nothing's really changed. That's what they're saying. So in other words, the people of the world are denying the second coming of Christ. But in Scripture, he's saying to his beloved, I have given you a promise. And what's the promise? I'm coming again. And I want you to know that. So see, where is the promise of your coming? Well, I'm telling you what it is. See, the judge, the reference is to Christ's second coming when he will come for judgment and the wicked will perish in the lake of fire. Again, chapter 3, verse number 10. But the day of the Lord will come, all right? And then in verse number 12, looking for the hastening of the, of the day of God. So this verse has reference to a limited group of people. Now, if you look again to 2 Peter 3, 9, it starts by saying the Lord is not slow about his promise, the promise of his coming, as some count slowness, all right? But is patient towards you, towards who? All right, that's the question. Not wishing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. Now, in other words, God is patient towards you, the elect, many of whom have not yet come to repentance. And still today, they have not come to repentance yet. So then, God is not wishing that any of us, any of the elect, to perish, so that is why God is delaying these things, so that all of us come to repentance and salvation and receive the benefits of salvation. So why is the Lord holding back his second coming? Why is the Lord preventing it from happening? So all the elect could be saved. That's why he's doing it. Got that? See, so in the context, it's completely not what most people quote it to be. Look, God's not willing to anybody. No, but if in the context, what is it really? Here's the interpretive solution. All right? In other words, God is not willing or wishing that any of his elect will perish. The passage may be read as follows. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any of you, the chosen ones, to perish, but all to come to repentance. Now, when we look at it like that, then we understand now what the passage of Scripture says. All right? So, in other words, that, that's what the Lord's doing. He's holding back his second coming, the day of the Lord, the judgment of the Lord, and he's doing it for what reason? So the elect had come, because God's not willing that any elect should perish, right? And so that is, of course, the interpretation of the passage of Scripture. And so now when you look at it, you're going to look at it in a different way. 
All right. Now, let's go on because there's other passages of Scripture. Let's turn our Bible now to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and then verse 3 and 4, and then verse 6 and 7. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. And this is what it says. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse number 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time, verse 7, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. All right, again, I want you to remember that all does not mean all people without exception, but all, but all people with, without distinction. In other words, Jews, Gentiles, bond-free, men and women, rich and poor. Right? So historically, I want you to remember that this passage of Scripture is important. Now, I don't know if you picked up on what it says there in that passage. This is the first part, but the second part of the passage I highlighted the last part there where it says a teacher of the Gentiles that is key to the interpretation of this passage. Why? Because historically, the Jews had been the exclusive recipients of God's grace, right? So the salvation of the Gentiles was a mystery that had not been known in other ages. So mentioned in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 1, So rigid was the Pharisaic exclusivism that the Gentiles were called unclean, common sinners, and even called dogs. In other words, the Jews never considered that a Gentile, because they were so unclean, could ever be brought into the presence of God or made right with God. In other words, it was not lawful for a Jew to keep company with or have any dealings with the Gentiles. All right, now... To, to just back that up, go uh, keep your hand there and go to the book of Acts. And I want you to notice a few passages in the book of Acts, what's going on here in Acts chapter 11, verse 1 through 3. All right, notice what it says in Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. And it says this. Now the apostles, verse number 1, and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God. Verse 2, when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised, that's the Jews, took issue with him. Now, why did they take issue with Paul? Because he actually was in the presence of and minister to the Gentiles. So now they're thinking, now, Paul, you're unclean. But notice what it says in verse number three. It says, and you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. A Jew doesn't do that. Are you crazy? You don't do that. All right, now, but look at the amazing revelation in verse number 18 of 
Acts chapter 11. It says, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance that leads to life. Wait a minute. God is, is, is moving to all peoples of the world with the gospel. It was a mind-blowing revelation for a Jewish person at this particular time to even consider that other than a Jew would be saved. Now, of course, bringing that all together, what is the interpretive solution to this passage of Scripture? It's this. So the thrust of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 4, is that Paul is defending his ministry to the Gentiles and saying here that the ransom of Christ is not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. All right, so he is not saying that in the passage of Scripture that the Lord is desires to, uh, who desires all men to be saved is talking about all men everywhere, every person he's talking about. No, people from a particular group, in this case, people from the Gentile group. Who are they? Everyone else besides the Jew. If you are here and you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. Doesn't matter where you came from, right? You are a Gentile. So therefore, the point of the passage of Scripture is he's defending his ministry to the Gentiles, saying, no, this is what God is doing. He's the ransom that Messiah accomplished on the cross is not only for you guys, the Jews, but it's for everyone. Anyone Now, the gospel is open to everyone. doesn't mean everyone will be saved, but the gospel is open to everyone. All right? All right, so that is another one. Here's another passage of Scripture, and let's take our Bibles, go back to 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 1. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse number 1. And I only got this one and one more, and then I'm done this morning. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse number 1. Look what it says there. Now, you have your Bibles. Look what it says. But false prophets also arose among the people. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Now, Some will say that this verse says that Jesus purchased salvation for everyone, even for those who end up in hell. Well, the problem is this. There's nothing here about the blood of Christ or the purchase of redemption. Actually, the Greek word that is used for master or Lord is not the common word used in the Greek, kurios, but it's the word despot. Right? And of course, a despot is someone who is a sovereign, who is a master, who is a creator. It gives the idea that that person has power and ownership. It's also coupled with a word uh, in the Greek that means to buy or purchase. In other words, a despot or a master or a creator is someone who, buy, if he buys something, he owns it. It's his. He can do what he wants with it. And of course... Saying all that, the interpretive solution to this passage of Scripture is, is simply this, that uh, this one that 
where it says even denying the master who bought them, it's this, that this passage of Scripture is not teaching about the atonement of Christ at all, but that these false teachers are denying the Lord God, their creator, who made them, and as creator, owns them and could do what he wants with them. And what are they doing? In the passage of Scripture, they're introducing to the church destructive heresies. What do you think God's going to do with somebody like that? All right? He, as the owner, can do anything he wants with them, and he's going to hold them responsible for them bringing false teaching into the church. All right? So that passage of Scripture is, is not uh, teaching at all about uh, the, the purchase of Christ's sacrifice. It's talking about God is the creator, and he is going to hold people responsible because as a creator, he owns everyone, and he can do what he wants with them. And he will hold fair judgment on every single person who does not know Christ as Lord and Savior. And for believers, he will hold judgment on us based on how we live the Christian life, right? So that is what is taking place. Boy, these things are working out great this morning. I don't, I, I don't know what to do now. All right. All right, one more, and then I'm going to close. Uh, and I think these are the six major passages of Scripture that everyone will bring up, and you now know the real de- interpretation because uh, there is a real interpretation. Remember, there's not many interpretations. There's just one, and you've got to find out which one it is that fits the context, that does not violate theology, right, and the whole theology of the Bible, and that... In- keeps intact the character of God because it's the Lord who bring us the word of God and says, this is what I've done. Whether you believe it or not, whether you understand it fully or not is one thing, but this is what I've done. It is our job as believers to get to the place where we understand these things and can discern them when we come to a passage of scripture that says, no, this is what it says. And are, you're confident in that, that interpretation because it's right there in the context all right, so here's the last one, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 22, and then we'll read some other passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 22, and it says this, a short passage, it says, for, all, for as in Adam all die, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. All right, now, according to a theologian named Lorraine Bettner, he said this, this verse is often quoted by Arminians to prove unlimited or universal atonement. This verse is from Paul's famous resurrection chapter, and the context makes it clear that he is not talking about life in this age, whether physical or spiritual, but he is talking about resurrection life. Now, now look down to verse number 22, uh, and then down to verse 26. It says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Verse 23, Christ the firstfruits, after those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, who, when he has established all rule and all authority and power, verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. 
the last enemy that will be abolished is death. All right, so now there's the whole context. What is actually going on here? And here is the interpretive solution to that particular passage of Scripture. It's this, that Christ is the first to enter the resurrection life. Then when he comes, his people also will enter into their resurrection life. So then this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. He is saying this. That at that time, a glorious resurrection life will become a reality, not for all mankind, but for all those who are in Christ. All right? Now, of course, if, you, if you're in Christ, when were you put in Christ? You were put in Christ, according to Ephesians, before the foundation of the world. Right? So that means now we're coming to the end here, and now... Paul is talking about the resurrection of believers. And what is the hope that we have? We, as believers, the hope that we have is that we're going to be raised from the dead. All right? Now, everybody will be raised from the dead. There will be a, a resurrection unto damnation, but a resur- or, and then also a resurrection to life. Right? But if you notice our passage, it says in, in verse number 22, for as in Adam all die, but also in Christ will all be made alive. Not everybody will be made alive in the res- this resurrection with Christ. Others will be damned in their resurrection. So see, now we narrow it down to, to understand that this resurrection life will become a reality, but not for all mankind, but only for those who've come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior, and how it says it in the passage that you're in Christ. If you're in Christ... You can't be taken out of Christ. Once you're in Christ, you're in Christ forever, all right? And the reason why you make it to eternity is not because of anything you've done, any beauty you had, anything you could offer God. You only come because you trusted in Christ alone for eternal life and salvation. And based on that and that alone, will you end up in glory. Amen? All right, so I've come full circle from where I began, and I must reject the notion that the original purpose or intent for Christ's death was to make possible the salvation of all people on the condition of their believing, that is, any person who will of his or her own free will repent and believe. But instead, from sound biblical evidence, conclude that the original purpose or intent For Christ's death was to ensure the salvation of his people, which was definite in design and accomplishment. And the doctrine states that the death of Christ actually puts away the sins of all God's sheep or all God's elect and ensures them that they will be brought to faith through regeneration. God's not coming back until that happens, and then they will be kept in faith right into glory. So that's what it is teaching. So Christ's death is limited, not in power, but in extent. What limits Christ's death is that by God's design and purpose, Jesus died only for the elect, those he chose to be saved before the foundation of the world, 
and Jesus offered a definite atonement or a particular redemption to a certain group of people. I pray that you're in that group. One passage to close. The Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse number 14 and 15. And the reason why is because this is very personal. This, is, this doctrine is very personal to our Lord, to our God. And what do I mean by that? Well, look at John chapter 10 and verse number 14. Verse 14 and 15, it says this. It says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, I know the Father. And notice what he says now. I lay down my life for the sheep. You understand that? He lays down his life only for the sheep. And why? Because he knows us. And that's when we, I get to First Peter, I'm going to talk about foreknowledge. What does foreknowledge mean? It means that God foreknew us in love when he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's what it really kind of means. All right? And so that's what we have there, that Christ lays down his life for the sheep, for those who come to know him, because he knows them, right? And once you know the Lord, do you want to leave? Do you want to leave the Lord once you know him? No. You know why? John chapter 6, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere else to go for salvation except Jesus Christ. Amen? So I pray this morning that you know for sure that you're saved today and that you know Christ is your Lord and Savior and that you're living for him and you're serving him. And um, if you don't know that, please come and talk with me because the most important thing that you could know is how to be right with God. And that's what the Bible teaches. Let's pray. And uh, Rebecca Fantuzo is going to come and give a, your presentation, right, on uh, Operation Christmas Child, right? So let's, let's pray. And we're going to sing first. We'll sing first, then she comes. Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you. Lord, your, your word does clear up matters. So I pray that we would always, always be understanding that context is king, that the context clears up many of the questions people have, Lord, especially when it comes to confusing isolation of verses out of their context, and in and of itself, it, it could seem to say what people are saying it says until we put it back in its place, and we look at it in its immediate and broader context, and then we realize this is what it really says. So, Lord, help us to be about that in correct interpretation of Scripture. And, Lord, I pray that as we do that, we wouldn't yank things out of context and use them for our own, uh, our own uh, choices or even in ignorance. Lord, so help us to be more wise with that. And, Lord, strengthen our faith by these truths, knowing, Lord, that if you save somebody, they're saved. And I pray in Christ's name, amen.